0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The bodies of two Coloradans killed fighting ISIS are back on U.S. soil. One of them was Levi Shirley, who died in July. The other, Jordan McTaggart of Castle Rock. Dozens of American citizens have joined foreign militias in order to fight ISIS outside the purview of the U.S. military. And their deaths in Syria were a conundrum for the U.S. government, as I talked about with Washington Post national security reporter Dan Lamoth recently.
1: You can imagine that the complications on that sort of thing, you know, without the typical uh, American logistics backbone you would have, you know, helicopters, convoys, all those sorts of things that are regular in a place like, you know, Iraq in the heyday of the war there or, or Afghanistan even now.
0: Colorado Congressman Democrat Ed Perlmutter had a hand in bringing Shirley and Mitt home. His office also helped repatriate the body of one other American from North Carolina. Congressman, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, Thanks, Nathan. I'm glad to be on your show.
0: The U.S. State Department warns people not to go to Syria to fight ISIS. They say, quote, "...assistance to individuals who are injured or kidnapped or to the families of individuals who die as a result of taking part in the conflict is extremely limited." So I wonder, why did you want to get involved in this issue?
2: Well, the State Department does give a stark warning to anybody considering uh, going to fight in Syria, because it is a very dangerous place. Everybody seems to be fighting with one another. But these are three uh, Americans, and I felt it was our responsibility to work with the United States, to work with whomever would work with us, especially the Kurds, to bring uh, those bodies home.
0: Has this been a conflicted issue for you to work on?
2: It's not been a conflicted issue because once they were killed and the families reached out to us, particularly the Shirley family, I felt it was our duty to help uh, return the remains.
0: Did you get a lot of pushback from colleagues in Congress or maybe the White House or, or were they supportive of your efforts to help these families and bring these bodies home?
2: Well, we didn't get any pushback from my colleagues in Congress. I think this is one of the very first instances where something like this has occurred. There may have been one young man killed a year ago who was a U.S. citizen, but really this is the first experience that I think any of the congressional offices have had or the Senate offices, and we actually requested help from the White House, and we got it to help uh, bring these bodies home.
0: How did the White House help?
2: Well, there were snafus getting the bodies out of Syria. There was a question whether to take them up to Turkey or take them to Iraq. And it was slow going, so we contacted uh, our liaison at the White House, who then worked with us and the State Department to really uh, start the process moving. Uh, Moving the bodies across northern Iraq, obviously dangerous, but less dangerous than going into Turkey. There was a question whether to fly to Qatar or fly through Turkey. Ultimately, the flights were through Amman to uh, Chicago O'Hare Airport. There were questions about whether to then transport by train or plane to Colorado.
0: And I understand the Shirley family also worked with a private repatriation company to secure their son's body and transport it from Syria. They, in turn, work with local officials on the ground. So when do these two Coloradans come back to the state?
2: We expect them to come home tomorrow morning. They, I believe, are in, at O'Hare Airport. Uh, there will be transportation uh, by train uh, to bring them home to Union Station.
0: And that's Denver's Union Station?
2: Uh, that's what's expected, and I think that will move forward. But this whole process has been very difficult. There have been a lot of stops and starts. So I'm saying that with about 90 percent probability, but there's always been a little glitch everywhere along the way. But I think we're finally, at least the bodies are in the United States, and that is a huge uh, progress, huge step forward for all of us. Uh, I can't thank my own staff enough for how hard they worked and how they stayed on top of this to make this happen. This was a very difficult process.
0: What about the U.S. military, Congressman? Did they help at all, or did they stay out of this because these weren't U.S. service members being recovered? Uh,
2: The U.S. military, for all I know, stayed out of this.
0: When U.S. soldiers are killed in battle, their caskets come home with American flags draped on them. Will these men who fought with Kurdish forces against ISIS get that same kind of treatment?
2: They will get similar treatment. Uh, my office had uh, flags that were flown over the Capitol prepared in honor of these two, young, you, these two young men. We took the extra step to get these flags flown over the Capitol to show uh, how much we respected them for going to fight ISIS, but more than that, just respect for them as young Coloradans.
0: Do you consider these men patriots, Congressman?
2: I think they're patriots. Uh, Would I recommend that others go do this? No, I would not. But I think these young men were patriots. I think they were good young men. You know, you look at Levi Shirley's history. He was a good student in Arvada. He was an outstanding athlete, but he had very poor eyesight and was not qualified to join our military. Yet he had this desire to serve. And he went forward, uh, Mr. McTaggart, you know, a little bit of a troubled youth decided, you know, cleaned himself up, decided he wanted to do something more. So in their hearts, uh, I feel like they were patriots.
0: Uh, Are you sending a mixed message, Congressman, to other people who want to go fight ISIS?
2: I don't think so. I'm saying to them. Look, this is dangerous. There are lots of ways in this world to serve your country, to serve humanity. Uh, This is a very, very dangerous one, and we've seen three deaths. And the difficulty we've had repatriating these young men from a very dangerous place where we don't have helicopters, as you were talking about earlier in the introduction. We don't have a lot of troops. We don't have all of the systems in place to bring the bodies home. So I would say it's happened. We have a responsibility. We, the United States, have a responsibility to do our best to bring the bodies home. On the other hand, we also have a responsibility to say, there are other ways to serve the United States. There are other ways to serve humanity. This is dangerous, and it's difficult to get you home if you get kidnapped or, in this instance, killed.
0: Congressman, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Nathan.
0: Colorado Congressman Democrat Ed Perlmutter represents the state's 7th district. His office helped bring the bodies of three American civilians, including two from Colorado, back to the U.S. after they died fighting ISIS alongside foreign fighters. Memorial services will be held for Levi Shirley on September 24th in Arvada and Jordan McTaggart on October 1st in Castle Rock. Hear more about Levi Shirley and other Americans going to fight in Syria at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A huge stockpile of chemical weapons has sat in Pueblo for decades. This month, work to dismantle the nearly 800,000 warheads reached an early milestone. The plant, specifically built for their destruction, is now handling mustard agent. The work won't be finished until 2020. That puts the U.S. in violation of an international chemical weapons treaty. Let's listen to Ryan Warner's interview from last year with an expert on the subject, Georgetown University law professor David Koplow. First off, what is mustard gas? Mustard is a nasty chemical that has been used in warfare from
3: World War I on. It is in some ways the most famous of the early chemical weapons, but it's not the most deadly or the most damaging. It is a vesicant, which means that it kills or harms by causing blisters on the skin, especially on soft tissue like the eyes and lungs. And it kills about one or two percent of the people who are infected by it. Was it developed to be lethal or was it mostly developed to just give you a really awful time? Well, its main effect as a weapon is not to kill, but to harass and incapacitate because the enemy soldiers, to avoid the toxic effects, have to don these cumbersome suits that include the gas mask and a full body covering, and that greatly inhibits their military effectiveness. And would the effects of of mustard gas exposure be long-lasting? They could be. Uh, It is a burn on the skin. It blisters the skin, and it can take an extended time for that to heal. Most people affected by mustard do heal over time, although there's some increased carcinogenic effect as well. Well, did the U.S. ever use mustard gas? The United States did not. Uh, U.S. soldiers were victims of mustard attacks during World War I. The United States manufactured uh, mustard and was preparing to use it, but never did. Preparing to use it in World War I and II? Exactly. And in World War II, dramatically, Chemical weapons were not much used in the central battlefields, although both sides were well armed with chemical weapons and expected them to be used at any time, including not just mustard, but new generations of much more lethal nerve agents. And and these weapons were really part of an arms race. Uh, They've been stored in Pueblo for decades. The army only now just beginning to take them apart. So what's going on in Pueblo so the, the Army is proceeding to destroy the chemical weapons at Pueblo and at uh, all the other sites where chemical weapons had been stored. The chemicals were originally stored at eight sites around the country, and six of them have completed their destruction operations. So Pueblo and Lexington, Kentucky remain. They are the outliers here. That's right. They are the last remaining parts, the last 10% or so of the stockpile that the United States originally declared. And the timetable pushes the United States right now into violation of the treaty, correct? That's right. This treaty requires countries not only to declare their chemical weapons and to never use them, but also to destroy them. And it sets out a timetable that requires every country, every party to the treaty, to get rid of all its chemical weapons within 10 years and allows a single five-year extension beyond that. The treaty entered into force in 1997, so the 15 years came up in 2012, And the United States and Russia were unable to meet that deadline. I see. That's who we share uh, this company with. It's bad company on this matter. We're in (laughs) violation of an important international agreement. Are there consequences to that uh, internationally? Well, it's diplomatic consequences. And the rest of the world has been demanding that all parties to the treaty destroy their chemical weapons. And the United States demands that as well and insists that everybody live up to all their chemical weapons obligations. There's no penalty or fine or lawsuit against the United States, but it's a black eye diplomatically. I'm imagining some, you know, smaller nation calling for sanctions. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the country that has been most uh, most opposed to the US and Russian action has been Iran. And there the diplomatic back and forth is an obvious quid pro quo. The United States has been complaining about Iran's nuclear program and violations, and Iran counters with complaints about the U.S. violation of its chemical obligations. If the United States had managed to get rid of these chemical weapons in so many other places, why has it taken so long in Pueblo? Well, the biggest part of the reason is the particular technology that's being used to destroy the chemicals. At most of the sites, the Army's plan was to use incineration to burn the chemicals, and the Army developed a new kind of incinerator with all the scrubbers and smokestack cleanliness operations. But in some communities, the local activists were opposed to anything that could go up a smokestack. When you're dealing with substances of this great toxicity, even the tiniest particles going up a smokestack are a cause for alarm. Mm. And so they prevailed upon Congress to demand that, the Army experiment with alternative technologies. And it's those alternative technologies that are being used at Pueblo and at Lexington, and it's just taken a lot longer to develop that kind of fallback mechanism. In layman's terms, can you explain to us how this alternative means of disposal works? The alternative is essentially a chemical neutralization operation. You drain the chemical out of the munition, you add another chemical to it, There's a chemical reaction that denatures the chemical and renders it no longer usable as a weapon. It's still a toxic substance, and so you need to treat that in some way as well. And at Pueblo, the secondary treatment is a bioremediation process where they add microbes that can alter the chemical structure of the remaining sludge. Sounds like nasty work. And it's not quick work. That's, uh, and, and it's not cheap. And it's going to take a long time and a lot of money to get this job done. And it's in what? What kind of, like, warhead? How is it How is it stored? So it's stored in a variety of ways. At Pueblo, the primary devices are 155-millimeter projectiles, other somewhat smaller projectiles, some mortar shells. At other facilities, it is contained in an even wider array of different types of munitions and storage containers. Uh, In a paper in 2012 called Trainwreck, uh, you wrote that America's efforts were a blatant transgression of this treaty. What do you think led to that circumstance? Well, there's a variety of factors, one of which is that the job is just harder to do than anybody had anticipated. The United States has been in the process of destroying its chemical weapons for many years, long before the treaty began to require it. And at every step in the way, the process has been more expensive and more time-consuming than anybody had contemplated, in part because the munitions are so old and fragile and difficult to handle. But beyond that, one of the factors was a persistent pattern of mismanagement and bureaucratic delay by the Department of Defense. Over the years, this program was just never given the priority, the attention, the funding, necessary to make it succeed, and outside observers, including the General Accounting Office and others, have routinely criticized the management of the program. The Department of Defense has basically agreed with those criticisms and promised to do better, but never really been able to put the program on a, on a firm basis. Should people be worried if they're near Pueblo? I don't think so. The Army has undertaken the utmost in safety and, uh, and security, to handle all these things in the the safest mechanism possible. The other communities where even larger and more diverse quantities of chemicals were handled and stored and destroyed have suffered no adverse consequences. Although critics would say, how do we know? If you've got long-term exposure, such as through a smokestack, to even the tiniest quantities, some people would be concerned about that. But again, the smokestack approach not being used in Pueblo. That's uh, right. In, in Pueblo, it's a closed system so that nothing goes up a smokestack, nothing gets emitted into rivers or groundwater.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. It's a great pleasure. David Coplow teaches law at Georgetown University. He spoke to Ryan Warner last year. The Pueblo Chemical Agent Destruction Plant has begun handling mustard agent. The work is expected to go through 2020. Up next, how Greek miners in southern Colorado helped create workers' rights to unionize. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Ludlow Massacre and Colorado Coalfield Wars were one of the most violent episodes in U.S. labor history. 103 years ago today, miners in southern Colorado voted to strike against dangerous working conditions and poor pay. Greek miners have been called the bone and sinew of the strike. Their story is told in the new documentary Ludlow, Greek-Americans during the Colorado Coal War. Froso Tsuka of Athens, Greece, is one of the filmmakers, and retired Colorado District Judge Chris Melonakis of Westminster is a descendant of Greek miners. Froso, Chris, welcome to the program.
4: Hello, Nathan.
0: Hundreds of thousands of Greeks immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s. For many, the only work they could get was in the dangerous coal mines around the West. Uh, in the film, there's a description of what it was like to walk deep underground into a
1: mine. The darkness engulfed us and the water froze my feet.
5: The dampness and the cold under the earth were something I had never felt before, something closely related to death. After a long time of walking, my guide pointed out dark shadows moving rhythmically, whose blackened faces, shiny eyes, and the required light on their head gave the impression of
0: inhabitants of Hades. The mines were notoriously dangerous, and the miners lived in extreme poverty. We've posted a photo at CPRnews.org showing coal miners deep underground with burning candles attached to their headgear. Most of the Greeks, uh, Greeks in southern Colorado worked in coal mines owned by the huge Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, CFNI. Chris, both of your grandfathers were coal miners after the Coalfield War, but conditions hadn't changed much despite the strike. In the film, you tell the story of the events leading up to your paternal grandfather's death. Uh, Tell us that story.
1: Sure. My uh, paternal grandfather uh, had a couple molars extracted. They didn't sanitize the uh, equipment that was used, the utensils that were used to extract the molars. Uh, My grandfather uh, contracted a staph infection. uh, And for 10 days, uh, the uh, staph infection raged through his body. Uh, He worked nine of those 10 days in the mines. On the 10th day, he died because of staph. there was no way to treat a staph infection back then. Uh, when he died, he left behind uh, a widow and six children. My father was the oldest of the children. He was 10 years of age. Uh, my grandmother uh, could not speak uh, English at all. Obviously, none of the children really could produce in the mines. Uh, they lived in company housing. Uh, they uh, obviously, They were paid by scrip which was only negotiable in a company store. As a result, uh, my grandmother was going to be put on the street with her children, uh, but my father's brother uh, went into the mines and started to work uh, the mines so that the family would have an opportunity to have a roof over their head and a place to live.
0: And these workers were essentially indentured servants to CF&I, the mining and steelmaking company owned by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Uh, so how did the company keep these workers in such poverty?
4: Well, they they sent their agents to uh, uh, recruit the workers from uh, all over Southeast uh, Europe. Uh, that at that time, twenty five million people came to the U.S. from Southeast Europe. Half a million from Greece uh, uh, from Greece at that time. And uh, they promised them a, a home where they went and a good job. But what, when they came here, and they they lent them sometimes money to buy the ticket to get here, and um, but they put collateral for that uh, for that uh, loan. Uh, their their uh, farms in Greece. Uh, so they, when they got here, they already owned. They took them in to Colorado, and they already owe, owed money to the company. And the money they made in the at in, uh, their work was not enough for them to live and pay back the loan, so they were always uh, uh, owing money to the company they didn 't know their rights because they didn 't speak the language, so they were kept uh, practically as slaves in the in the company towns
0: and, and everything they purchased was through that company and if they didn 't uh, in the movie, you talk about how they were just fired mm-hmm. Were the miners treated differently by uh, other miners in these camps? Uh,
4: the Greek miners? Yeah. Uh, I don't think that they were treated differently. I think Italians and uh, Greeks uh, were uh, treated similarly. Uh, Greeks in particular, because they, uh, especially here in Colorado, the Cretans, because they came from Crete, was, which was in continuous uh, struggle against the Ottoman Empire, and they were fighting the Turks all uh, for years, 200 years they were fighting the Turks. When they came here, these people were warriors. They were not... Um, so they they were not used to being treated in such a way and they resisted being treated uh, badly. So I think that Greeks uh, maybe did have a, a bad name as being uh, um, too, too uh, strong-willed.
0: And, and Chris, in southern Colorado, New Mexico, it, it seems that the towns these were, were set up for, via ethnicity in a sense.
1: Yeah, they were. In fact, my father and my uncle uh, would tell us that Uh, Rockefeller in particular had set up uh, the towns so that each uh, ethnic group would live in a specific section of the town. Uh, Because they spoke different languages, there was no common language. There was no way for them to communicate and to effectively organize. Uh, My father and uncle used to tell me that they would have a Greek town and an Italian town and whatever the ethnicity in that particular camp was, and they would associate with people of, uh, of their own ethnic background. And so uh, it, it completely frustrated any uh, ability of the uh, miners to effectively organize.
0: But they did eventually organize, isn't that correct?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, what what the union did at that time uh, was to fa- they found a way to to uh, to unite the miners by by hiring bilingual organizers. Because the miners could not talk to each other because of their language differences. There were 23 different languages being spoken in the mines. They hired bilingual uh, organizers. And in that way, the miners were able to communicate with the union. They found out that they have rights and they can uh, they can fight for their rights. And eventually, by 1913, they were able to organize.
0: And this was the United Mine Workers of United America. Mine. yes. The the Ludlow Massacre happened in April 1914, and women and children suffocated as they hid beneath a tent when company-backed militiamen torts the Union camp there. That ignited 10 days of violence known as the Colorado Coalfield War. Chris, tell us about these Greek strikers and, and what experiences they brought to the struggle, uh, which greatly surprised the the company men.
1: Well, because so many of the, the, the Greek uh, miners were uh, Cretan uh, as Froso has indicated mm. historically they had fought a guerrilla war against the the Turks who occupied the island uh, for a couple hundred years so they were organized they understood uh, you know what it took uh, to uh, to uh, fight uh, this type of a fight they understood uh, how to uh, engage uh, the militia which actually the militia weren't uh, true militia, you know, they were mine goons who were recruited into the National Guard. So they they came with strategy and tactics that they had learned over a couple hundred years in fighting guerrilla warfare against the Turks, and they completely caught the National Guard off uh, off guard. And uh, as a result, uh, they were able to overwhelm them and to uh, to seize large areas of territory. Uh, destroy some mines, uh, and they were a formidable opponent.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Froso Tsuka, and she led the research for a new film about Greek-Americans during the Colorado Coalfield War and the Ludlow Massacre in 1914. Chris Melonakis of Westminster is a descendant of Greek coal miners. Froso, tell us about uh, Louis Tikus.
4: Well, Louis Tikus was a... Um the leader of the Greeks, of course. He was, uh, from what we found out, a uh, personality. He had a great personality. Uh, he was a, a very good negotiator. And uh, he he came from uh, uh, Crete in uh, ni- 1908. 1906. 1906. And he... 1906, mm. and he Lived only for eight years in the United States. He was killed in 1914 when he was 28 years old. At the Ludlow Battle. At the Ludlow Battle, yes. And uh, uh, the the head of the uh, militia killed him. He broke his uh, uh, rifle over his head on the day of the Ludlow Massacre. I think Chris can tell that story much better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the guy's name was Carl Lindenfelter who he was a lieutenant with the National Guard and uh, basically he had asked uh Tikus and a couple other uh strikers to meet him to uh, attempt to resolve the standoff and it was a ploy to get him up there. Um uh, Lindenfelter was uh, uh had had fought in the Philippines and also had uh, led a life as a mercenary. Uh he was a very brutal man. So once once he uh, Antikas uh, confronted each other, they had some initial discussions. He became angry. He hit him with the uh, the stock of the rifle. He cut his head open to the bone, knocked him down, and then uh, uh, basically Louis Ticus was murdered. He was shot in the back a couple of times as he lay on the ground.
0: Writer Dan Jordakas uh, authored a book about Greek American radicalism, and he is quoted in the in the movie. He says, Greeks weren't welcome in the U.S. and native-born Americans thought that all the immigrants were taking their jobs away and the Greeks somehow managed to get classified as the lowest form of Europeans and maybe not even European at all uh, to the Americans at that time. Does that mirror some of today's attitudes about immigrants, uh, maybe even in Greece?
4: Yes, actually, that was uh, one of the reasons that we decided to do this documentary. Uh, One of the phenomena we have in Greece now is that Greece is changing very fast from a homogeneous society of all Greeks to a multinational, multiethnic society. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, racism is rising. We actually have groups like the Golden Dawn, which is a fascist group that has about 7% of the popular vote and is in the Greek uh, parliament right now. So what we, one of the things we hope to do was to show to Greece to Greeks that uh, once we were in the place of these immigrants, once we were immigrants ourselves and we suffered the things that the immigrants are suffering now. And uh, it was uh, the film was very well received in Greece, and uh, I think it made a big impression. I think actually more people probably know Ludlow in Greece than they do in the United States.
0: (laughs) Are Greek-Americans, Chris, proud of their role during the Colorado Coalfield Wars? I mean, Greeks were described as the bone and sinew of the strike.
1: Yeah, I think they are. I mean, uh, we're we're very proud of our history and uh, the role we played in... Uh, attaining uh, equality for workers in this country and it's something that uh, I th- I think if you speak to people who are familiar with it they 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 take great pride in the role we played.
0: Froso, you arranged for a Greek band to record an old strike song mm-hmm. for the film uh, let's hear a bit of that. What's the story of this recording? It uh, is, of course, a, the melodies of Civil War song, uh, Battle yes. Cry of the Republic.
4: Yes, and um, uh, the leader of the um, uh, United Mine Workers in uh, Trinidad wrote the lyrics... And they put it to the music of the Battle of the... Um, yeah, Hymn, the, the, the Hymn of the Republic. Yeah. And um, what, uh, when, when we found out about the song, we found out actually from hearing uh, uh, the interviews of uh, of strikers, survivors of Ludlow that Professor Margolis has uh, archived in uh, Boulder University. And uh, we wanted to find the song to put it in the in the movie, and there was no recording of the song. So... We got some friends of ours, musicians. They were actually musicians that had been fired from the public radio of, New York, of Greece because of the cuts in the budgets. They were firing the musicians and they, we, we went in a studio one day and they recorded it.
0: Thank you so much to both of you for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Former State District Judge Chris Melonakis of Westminster is descendant of Greek miners. Frososuka worked on the documentary Ludlow, Greek-Americans in the Colorado Coal War. The film screens at the University of Colorado in Boulder on Tuesday. We've posted the film trailer, photos, and more at cprnews.org. Just ahead, we'll hear from two football coaches jockeying for the most wins ever. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. From the all three yards and a cloud of dust to today's spread offenses, our next guests have guided the lives of thousands of high school football players and won a few games along the way. Earlier this month, Scott Yates of Kent Denver High School tied the all-time Colorado record for victories, only to see Chris Brown of West Grand High School in Kremling beat the mark just a few hours later. Brown now holds the record with 308 victories, one more than Yates. But with both teams ranked in the state's top 10, chances are the men will chase each other for the rest of the season. Welcome to the both of you.
5: Hi, thank you. Uh,
0: Do do either of you feel like you're really holding a record when you're likely to lose it at least temporarily a few hours later? Uh, Chris Brown of West Grand.
5: Uh, I'm not really that concerned about the record. Uh, It's it's good for maybe uh, West Grand getting into the news, though.
0: Coach Scott Yates of Kent Denver, do you have a West Grand schedule memorized at this point?
6: <laughs> not even. I've I've got enough to take care of with the the group I'm coaching this year, and and um, so no, I I know that I know they've got a pretty good start going, and and that's about it. I just uh, have more to take care of just right here with my own group.
0: Now, come on, you you're both telling me it's not even in the back of your head a little bit.
6: You know, uh, for me. Go ahead, Chris. No, go ahead, Scott. Uh, you're right. Well, for me, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> certainly at the time when it looked like we might, um, reach Pat Panic's record, I thought, um, that that was pretty neat and pretty amazing. And, and there's a lot of family, um, connections with my family and our coaching and our family and, and Coach Panic and what he represented back in his day. And so, to be in the same category with him. And then, um, also when I started, by the time I started, Chris was, was, uh, you know, into a few years already of his, his tenure as a coach. And, and I knew who he was and, and was admiring his, uh, his teams at the time and some fabulous records he was setting in. So I'm aware of where we are. Um, is it something that, I'm thinking about it all the time. And the answer is no.
0: And you mentioned Pat Panic. Uh, he was the uh, the man who previously held the record. Um, and, and your first game as coach was against him, wasn't it, Coach Brown? And you came close to taking one of his wins away from him. How, how exactly did that happen?
5: Well, it was our first game, and and uh, uh, Coach Panic was a single wing uh, fanatic like Coach Gasco at Lyman, who I took over for, and they enjoyed playing each other. The first game every year. And so I inherited that game, and uh, it was a sloppy first game, but uh, the best team won on that day. And uh, But to be with, be with uh, Coach Yates and Pat Panic, I mean, that's a pretty good company to be at least mentioned with.
1: Coach
0: Yates, uh, despite more than 300 wins, d- do losses stick with you?
6: I think so. I, I know in my mind there's, there's probably five to ten losses that I look at that I think are directly related to uh my performance as a coach those days. And I think that they were they were days that I I look back and and kind of self scouting, I thought um that I could have I could have done some things a lot differently that might have changed the outcome.
0: And and coach, it's your father Dick, who was also a football coach, coached against Panic when you were a boy. What are those memories? Do you have some close memories of that?
6: You know, I was so young that that I don't remember Coach Panic personally but my dad would come home and speak highly of him and and it seemed that the years that my dad was coaching against him it was always kind of my dad's team and his team Coach Panic's team that were mm-hmm. facing off for the Denver Public School League title or something like that so I certainly knew who he was and his name was um bantered around our house with great respect
0: now, Coach Brown, you had two other jobs over a four year period before you came to West Grand you've now been the coach there for forty years. Did you envision a four decade run when you arrived there?
5: uh no, no, I thought we'd my wife and I thought let's try the mountains and uh see how that goes and It was a good place to raise our kids and we've just kind of stayed here
0: and coach yates you've you've been at Kent Denver since nineteen eighty one and you've said you thought it might be a three- to five-year stop as well. And, and after five years, you indeed spent one season as assistant at Arizona State, but you came back to high school, to coach high school. Why?
6: Well, in my mind, competition is relative. So when I was at Arizona State, it was something that I wanted to try uh, that level. I loved coaching that level. There was a lot of things I really liked. I didn't care that much for the lifestyle. Um because I think that level, you are are very transient in that you, if you win, you you tend to move to a bigger and better, and if you lose, you get asked to leave. So, mm. <laughs> um, for me, it was uh, it was that. But uh, one day in particular, we were getting ready to play um, University of Southern California USC down at Sun Devil Stadium in Arizona, and and uh, got out on the field, and I'm working with the guys, and I'm excited and everything else, and there's eighty thousand fans and. And it dawned on me afterwards that I was no more excited in front of those 80,000 fans than I was the 150 that we might get at our home games. And, and um, so the stage itself was not uh, that much of a, a lure to me as it was just the competition. And like I say, I think competition is relative, whether you're uh Division One, big time, whether you're you know, a 5A school or you're uh, uh, an eight-man school, I think. Um, you're still going to go against opponents that are competitive and that work hard. And, and it's a challenge every single time you step on the field.
0: Coach Yates is of Kent Denver High School. He tied the all-time Colorado record for victories, only to see Chris Brown of West Grand High School in Kremling break the mark just a few hours later and speaking to the both of them, they're trying to be the winningest football coaches in Colorado history. Uh, do you both have students that uh, were, are now fathers when, when you, when you uh, coach them? How does it feel to have maybe these kids come back that are now grown with their own kids that you're coaching?
6: Go ahead, Chris.
5: <laughs> well, for, for me, at least they're not uh, grandkids yet. Uh, my assistant coach in Lyman, Warren Mitchell, uh, long-time track coach, uh, great coach, he, he started coaching grandkids. He said, then you realize you're pretty old. And I haven't reached that point yet, but I think it's, it could be coming if I go long enough.
6: And I have a great time with the kids that uh, whose whose fathers I coached, and and I actually have have great and funny memories often of these these fathers, and uh, their kids get to be enlightened by me as to what their dads were like back when they were in <laughs> high school. So, so it's been yeah, that that part of it I've really enjoyed.
0: How have the kids changed, especially in the age of cell phones and social media? And you know, is there a difference between then and now?
5: For me, it's more the more parents, maybe, and, and uh, society. The kids are still kids and uh, wanting to perform and do well, and and are excited to play the game that they love, and and all that's very similar.
6: Uh, from my my standpoint, hmm. for me, I will tell you that um, I had to I had to kind of jump into the age of technology. And I'll, I'll be some of my, my colleagues will tell you that I'm, I'm still only got one foot in there, but um, I, re- I realized that communication with the kids, you need to do it on, on their level, which meant that I needed to learn how to text and do some of the other things that, um, that I, was, I was kind of stubborn and not, not thinking I was going to jump into. But, but here I am, and, and now I'm, I'm texting all the time and, and uh, trying to be part of their era. But was, like Coach Brown said, the kids are still hungry. They're enthusiastic. They they care. Um, you know, I I would I I'd love to argue when when you hear folks of my generation say, well, you know, kids these days. Um, I'd like I like to say, well, yeah, kids these days are great. Come out and see the ones I get to work with, because um, I think it's a whole a whole. There, there's still great kids out there.
0: Coach Brown, you've won four state championships, but you say if you were grading that like a teacher over 40 years, that would be an F. Why do you say that when 99% of coaches probably won't even come close to this record?
5: Well, it's the mentality that it's it's either win a state championship or you fail. I guess it was more sarcastic in that. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people when they get in this, you know, that's their goal, win a state title. And that's a, that's, that's okay for a short-range goal, but some years you're just, not, you're just not in the hunt, and other years you're in the hunt, but somebody just has a little bit better team than yours. When Scott was mentioning earlier about losses that stick with him, those semifinal losses are the toughest, I think, for you and your kids. You've been with them quite a long time in the season, and, and uh, most of those teams are very enjoyable. Uh, to coach, and then you lose in the semis, you're one step away. I mean, you're in the hunt. When you get to the semis, you're in the hunt for a state title, and it, those losses can be tough, especially like Scott said, when you you self-evaluate and you figure out you made some dumb moves that maybe, maybe could have hurt your team rather than help them.
0: And coach H., how do you measure successful uh, measures in terms of being a coach?
6: You know, our philosophy has always been to try and help young fellows become great young men. And so when I see young guys come back to school and they're, they're uh, they've got families and they're, they're doing what the things that they ought to be doing as dads and, and being good husbands and, and whatnot to me, that's the, that's the greatest lesson. Um, You know, if you're building character, um, chances are a lot of the wins are going to come, come with that. And, Um, so for us, that's kind of the number one thing is, is trying to grow young fellows into great young men. And, and, you know, it's been a great foundation for this program.
0: Real life situations, of course, can happen anytime. And Coach Brown, your 306th victory, which tied the all time wins record, came in the final game of the 2015 season. And that win came just three days after your starting quarterback, J.D. Guest died in a car crash driving home from practice.
5: Yeah, that was our, uh, that's my toughest game we ever had to prepare for and coach. And it wouldn't have been possible without his dad, uh, Eric Guess, and his uh, older brother, Will, who played for us, come in and talk to the team that there's no way we are not going to not play this game. And because I was ready just to say, let's hang her up and call it a year. It was a tough emotional thing. I just do not go through it again, and I don't wish it on anybody else.
0: Well, thanks that's to the one, bet. I'm sorry. Yeah, continue. Oh, that's
5: okay. One of the things about this record business that, that has been enjoyable, at least for me, I've had countless letters, emails, calls uh, from players as far back as 1976. And it's run I, I probably from every year I've ever coached. Somebody uh, has contacted me, and I've, I don't know how many I've gotten, but it's just so many. And to find out what those young men are up to and what uh, – this program and what our coaching staff has meant to these kids uh, to me that's worth more than any of those wins we ever got
0: thanks so much to the both of you
5: you're
6: welcome thank you, thank you.
0: coach chris brown of the west grand high school in kremlin has the all-time colorado high school football record for wins with 308 one more than scott yates of kent denver in englewood more colorado cities are converting to led street lights The move can help restore darker skies. It also helps towns save energy and money. But that new technology may have a downside. Some LEDs can emit a blue light that disrupts sleep and causes other health issues. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains.
7: In 2009, Uray City Administrator Patrick Rondinelli and others jumped at the opportunity to install LED streetlights. The city became the first in the state to make the move.
3: In Ure, we're very fortunate. We can actually still see the Milky Way, where, you know, you get to Denver, you can't see that
7: anymore. LEDs can reduce light pollution if properly directed toward the ground. They also cut Ure's street light bill by a third. But this June, the American Medical Association issued guidelines saying some LEDs, like Ure's, can be too blue.
1: The problem is some of the early LEDs that were produced have very high-intensity blue.
7: Dr. Mario Mata serves on the AMA's Council on Science and Public Health. He says that blue light is linked to a decrease in melatonin production. When adopting new LEDs, Mata says cities should opt for warmer, whiter lights.
1: There is the same cost to produce, the same longevity, and the same energy savings. So given everything is equivalent, there's absolutely no reason to put in bad lighting. You can put in good lighting.
7: Some professional groups have criticized the AMA guidance. Across the country, about 10 percent of outdoor lighting is powered by LEDs. Since energy savings can be as much as 50 percent, many places, including Fort Collins, want to make the change. Lighting designer Nancy Clanton says the new technology that comes with LEDs can actually be freeing. You can do whatever you want with this. Clanton has helped plan LEDs for cities including San Diego and Anchorage. She says each place has unique needs. In San Jose, she worked to install smarter technology that allows them to dim streetlights. Right before the bars close, they increase the lighting level so that everyone knows it's time to go home and then they decrease it back down again. This dimming technology will be installed in Colorado Department of Transportation lights in the coming years. Dimming is also possible on new lights Clanton's firm helped design for the 16th Street Mall. Denver Public Works spokeswoman Heather Burke says the poles and globe lights will look the same to most. But there's one noticeable change. Designers have restored a halo of lights that have been dark for years. The twinkle rings, you could see that ring up there. Um, On the old lights, they were inoperable for a long time. So those are restored now, and it's going to create a brighter, more inviting light for folks. These lights meet the new AMA recommendations back in Uray. City Administrator Patrick Rondinelli says he has no qualms about the city's transition to LEDs. We end our tour of town in front of City Hall. Just this summer he converted lights on the building to use LEDs, save money, and reduce light pollution.
3: Put a new light in and then not have to worry about it for the next 10 years is is a a great thing.
7: So despite some of the, you know, bumps in the road, it sounds like you're sold on LEDs. Oh,
3: absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had some lessons learned along the ways, but there's no
6: regrets.
7: Rondinelli hasn't tackled updating the streetlights yet, but he will. And in this story, good things come to those who wait. The longer he puts off the change, the better and more advanced LED technology will become. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News.
0: And that's our show. Thanks to my audio engineer, Michael Hughes and Matt Hurz, my director, Andrew DeConcas, producers Rachel Estabrook, Anthony Cotton and Shauna Lewis. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.